Welcome to Knowing Nature. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators and folks in the environmental sector about their perspectives on helping people to reconnect with the natural world. In today's episode, I'm talking about habitat-based or landscape-scale conservation. This kind of conservation can have many of the same conundrums as species-based conservation, including the problem of celebrity species taking up all the limelight and attention. In habitat conservation, the big stars are rainforests and coral reefs. But of course, these aren't the only important ecosystems out there. Arguably, one of the least known habitats is seagrass meadows. Seagrasses are found in shallow waters around the world and play a significant role in absorbing carbon dioxide and storing it in sediment. These meadows are also crucial nurseries for many commercially important fish species. Very little seagrass meadow remains in UK waters, but there has been some success in bringing them back. Project Seagrass is an environmental charity formed in 2013 devoted to the conservation of seagrass ecosystems through research, community, and action. Since 2013, Project Seagrass has had a number of successes. They've created opportunities for students in marine conservation, they've created the world's biggest entry-level seagrass citizen science project, contributed to over 70 scientific publications, contributed to work in over 10 countries, and they contributed to filming of the BBC's Blue Planet 2 and the recent Green Planet series. Without further ado, here's my interview with RJ and Evie from Project Seagrass. So joining me today from Project Seagrass are Richard Lilly and Evie Furness uh, from Project Seagrass. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you, Victor. Cheers, thanks. Before we jump into the topic today, it's always nice to get to know the guests a little bit. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about maybe what got you into nature or conservation and how you got started with Project Seagrass. Um, maybe Evie, we'll start with you. The first moment for me that really captured this idea of marine biology was coming out of school, having no idea what to do and doing a scuba diving course. Just that's the sort of thing you do in your gap year. And I did it in a quarry under Heathrow Airport. I jumped in the water and I was holding my buddy's hand and I realized that I could only see their hand. I couldn't see them because the water was just so murky and so dark. At that moment, I was like, wow, this is cool. I, I need to do more of this. So I got really into scuba diving and scooched out and started exploring with my scuba diving and was like, discovered the oceans. And once you've discovered the oceans, you just can't look back. <laughs> so that got me into marine biology. And I stumbled across RJ and his little crew at Project Seagrass. And thankfully, they took me on for an internship during my undergrad degree. And I've never looked back. Richard, uh, how about yourself? For me, nature's conservation more broadly has always been part of, it's been important to my family. You know, they've, they've often encouraged us to be out camping and being out in nature. So from a young age, I was always interested in in nature. I remember at school, one of the big things that got me sort of agitated and angry about nature degradation was it was actually I must have been about 13 or 14 and I remember I was on a rugby tour down in the west country so down in I think it's Devon Devon or Cornwall and I don't know why we had a day off or something maybe a game was cancelled but anyway I went out with them for the day um, and I went to buy my I wanted to get into surfing and I went to buy my first wetsuit and 
went to a it was just it was just a secondhand wetsuit but I was buzzing as a kid this is my first wetsuit so the first thing I wanted to do was try it on so we went down to the beach and there was no surf but I just wanted to have a swim around and I remember going in and having a swim around but swimming into essentially what was I think some sort of like oil slick I don't know what it is um what it was or but either way I remember coming out and being really annoyed as a teenager a young teenager that I'd got this black stuff all over my new suit, even though it wasn't a new suit. But the worst thing after that was where the where the whatever was in the sea had come made contact with my skin, is my skin started sort of peeling off over the next few days. Like where it got between the suit and and my uh, my skin. And so one as a as a kid, I was more annoyed, I think, probably about the fact that my new suit was ruined. But I was also then really annoyed that you can't just go swimming in the sea without there being this happening to me. And it was at the same time that that would have been a tour at Easter. And I remember going back and we had a, a teacher at school called Dr. Parkin. And he was really passionate about ecology and the environment. And it was the, so just after that tour, I went straight back into learning about food webs and food chains. And, and so we had lots of good conversations in, in, in school over that period. And that kind of fired, fired up that interest there, I think. And yeah, fast forward a few years, I, t- I took a year out between graduating school and university and went to do some uh, terrestrial conservation work in Australia. Um, lived over there for a year, met met someone actually worked at the Grand Canyon um, and for the National Park Service there. And she invited me across to do some volunteering there. So on the way back to the UK, I went and did some, some work at the Grand Canyon. The marine element really only came in after my undergraduate degree, because for my undergraduate degree, I did a lot of work looking at sort of human prehistory and primates actually anthropology so i initially after graduation i wanted to go and work in the the amazon but my girlfriend at the time was not up for that so we compromised on um, a marine biology like volunteer placement um in in mexico and yeah a, a bit a bit like evie once you've once you've done some scuba diving mind blowing fell in love with it and haven't really looked back since i guess initially it was, it was corals and then once i got involved in academia that's what led me to to seagrass we both work with a colleague called Richard Unsworth um, he gave me a lecture on on seagrass meadows and and that was it I was I was like I want to learn about this this habitat I'd never heard of it that's the view of the ocean that I've had from a few other guests who've who've been on and they're like oh well I took a scuba diving course just because I thought it'd be cool and then they're like oh wow, I can't get enough of this um so someday maybe <laughs> or at the very least do some snorkeling you know, but the thing is, with here comes the scuba diving cell. It doesn't need to be scuba diving. You know, snorkeling or or, or you know, gentle free diving. A lot of the life in the coastal zones in that first ten meters. So there's so much to explore. Even you know, just, and just, just being from yeah, close to the surface, just sticking your head under the. Just getting in those rock pools. The amount yeah. of life you can see in a rock pool without even having to put a wetsuit on or a mask on, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's been the the extent of what I've done. But even that is just awesome. Um, really, like actually, Victor, you should come to North Wales. There's there's a seagrass meadow we we go to in um, North Wales every year to collect some seagrass seeds, and, and there at a low tide, you can actually walk out into the meadow. Ooh. So it's and it's full of life. It's it's a phenomenal place, and there's a cracking pub right on the beach as well. So nice, nice. Yeah, yep. and I've never me. been to North Wales. I've been to the south South Wales, but not to yep. the north. So that'd be great. So you talked about this in sort of your introduction to yourself that not many people really know much about sea 
seagrass meadows and seagrass habitats. And this is something that I was thinking about when I first found out about Project Seagrass, came across my my Twitter feed, uh, and I was vaguely aware that seagrass was a thing. But then, you know, it occurred to me that, oh, it, it's kind of like the way that pandas steal the conservation limelight, like rainforests and coral reefs, they really steal the show for the uh, the landscape scale or the habitat conservation scene. But, you know, there are other important animals out there and there's other important habitats out there like seagrass meadows. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about seagrass and meadows? Because I think a, a lot of people, when they think of plants in the sea, they think of seaweed, but that's a type of algae, like a macro algae, but seagrass is quite different from that. So could, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So no, you, you're spot on. And um, one of marine science's most famous sons, um, Carlos Duarte, um, often referred to, or I think in a paper referred to sea, seagrass meadows as the ugly duckling of marine conservation. So it's, um, I, I think we're, it's becoming the beautiful swan. I think we're, more and more people are, are learning about seagrass meadows. But certainly, yeah, in terms of like global funding um, and, and, and sort of public awareness of, of these habitats is minimal. It, it varies from place to place, to be honest. You know, in Australia, because the Great Barrier Reef, I mean, that could equally be called the Great Seagrass Meadow. There's there's lots of it out there. There, there is obviously more focus, and there's been a longer-term focus on seagrass meadows and seagrass communication. But certainly here in the UK, it's really been over the last 10 years that seagrass meadows have sort of grown in stature and, and become more prominent in the marine conservation conversation, I guess. Seagrasses are exactly like you said. They're a plant. So they're a plant that evolved on land and returned to the sea. And that's the key difference between a seagrass and, and like you said the algaes is that one's a plant and one's an algae um, one of the reasons why seagrasses everyone's so excited about seagrasses is because it ha- they have those plant characteristics which means they essentially have a root and a rhizome system what that allows the plant to do is, is to set out a root system into the sediment in much the same way that plants would on land so if you can imagine gardening on land and you were to go and take a plant and you were to pull it out all the sediment is bound within all that root system it's that same process is happening in the sea and it might sound like a, a relatively small difference, but what that does is it, it binds all the sediment onto the seafloor and means that the water quality or the water clarity in particular above seagrass meadows is really clear. So you tend to find seagrass meadows in these calm, sheltered bays and lagoons. And where they are present, you get this really nice water clarity above them. So it makes it a phenomenal place to go snorkeling and to see, you know, try and spot marine life because you haven't got that turbidity associated with um blank sea floors where the, the sediment can be resuspended. The the other phrase that I've seen associated with seagrass is that it's an ecosystem engineer. So it it has this very significant impact on the environment where it grows, where it kind of creates its own habitat in a sense. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So a part of it is the um the turbidity because seagrass needs a lot of sunlight, is that right? So what what kinds of areas will we find seagrass kind of start to colonize in and then what's kind of the process of of how a meadow would then spread out? So yeah, just like RJ said, it's in nice sheltered bays is where you'll tend to find seagrass, so coastal, shallow habitats. And it works, it's magic to bond together the seabed, just like RJ was saying, which helps to protect our coastlines. We're not losing the sediment, where it's staying in place and it's dampening the, if you imagine a great big wave coming in and then if that was just hitting our coastlines direct, that's a lot of energy and force going straight onto our coast. Whereas if you've got a big seagrass meadow, it's like having this big defense mechanism in the way. It's like a 
a good cushion to slow that wave down and protect our coastlines a bit more. So that's a big part of the engineering around it, of protecting what we've already got. It's quite magic in the way that because it's a plant, just like you've got on land with your trees, photosynthesizing and taking in carbon to make its food, we've got the same going on in the ocean. It's taking in carbon dioxide, making it into food, locking it down into the sediment in that same way that its root system are protecting our coasts. It's also helping to fight climate change. So there's so many different benefits coming from this one meadow. That's before you even start looking at the life within. One of the things that um, I'm keen to keen to stress this year, actually, is is the fact that there's lots of different types of seagrasses. So, you know, there's, there's probably between 60 and 70, 60 and 72 different species globally, let's say, certainly over 60. And they're all different shapes and sizes. So not all seagrasses were created equal. What they all do, exactly like you said, is they photosynthesize and they, they, they create organic material. And so they create the plant system themselves. Now, some of these plants are tiny, you know, they're really short, a couple of centimetres or maybe like five centimetres in height, rich in carbohydrates, great food for, you know, charismatic creatures like manatees and dugongs and sea turtles. And then you've got others which are much lower growing. Um, your Posidonia oceanica in the Mediterranean, for example. These are kind of like the oak trees of the seagrass world, like super slow growing. But they've got really thick rhizomes or root systems, you know, as thick as a carrot almost, and and and, and can be several metres deep. Seagrasses, yeah, they've got this huge variety and they all, they all do different things in different places, essentially. You know, whether that's creating that massive three-dimensional habitat for baby fish to hide in. You know, if you're a baby fish and you've got these leaves projecting up into the into the water column from the seafloor you've got loads of little nooks and crannies that you can hide in there when you're when you're when you're young when you're older you don't really have that you can't hide anymore you know i'd find it difficult to hide in the seagrass meadow but um you know and so would seals and, and other larger creatures but for, for juvenile fish there's an abundance of them making seagrass meadows home something that i always think about in in an, like in a pond so when, when i used to work at a wetland charity and people are always asking for advice on like how can i make a wildlife pond and one of the most important things is you need some submerged plants in there as shelter for the creatures that you want to move into the pond otherwise they're all just going to get eaten up and it's, it's a very similar thing it sounds like with seagrass meadows is that it's a really important nursery habitat for quite a lot of different species a lot of species that we might think of as open open water fish and also commercially important fish animals like cod and place which we'll remember from fish and chip shops you know we think of them as open water deep water fish but a lot of them will actually start their life um, in seagrass habitats now I understand that the seagrass habitats are they're not really thought about in the UK context and perhaps part of it is because the stat that I've read is that somewhere around 40% of seagrass habitat in the UK uh, has been lost since the 1980s and if you go further back in time historically the UK has actually lost probably somewhere a bit over 90% of the historical seagrass habitat so there's just not much of it left what are the drivers of that habitat loss here in the UK so Alex Green led on this work, a PhD student in um, out of London. So one of the issues we've got with seagrass meadows in the UK is very poor historical data. So we, we weren't actually sure how much we had in the first place. And that's why you've got these really quite large error margins, you know, pretty confident around 50% loss. It could be as much as 92. Um, and to be honest, even today, one of the things that we're doing is, is mapping seagrasses around the UK. We've got a collaboration with, with CGI to see if we can map satellite um map seagrass meadows from space using um, satellite technology. We've also got drones, bespoke survey drones, which are designed to cover 
relatively large areas and and, um, and create high resolution maps of the seafloor. So we, you know, that work is is still in progress. But going back to your, your your question about where the loss has been, a lot of the loss, which is we've got good evidence for, has been in the in the major estuarine systems. So if you can imagine the Thames, you know, Thames estuary, for example, water quality in the Thames 200 years ago wasn't great. And this is also true of the Clyde and the Firth of Forth. And so there was a lot of pressure put on these plants, even driving some to local extinction. Um, historically, we, we, you could, you can, we don't know that for sure because we weren't there and, and people weren't doing the science. But you can imagine, based upon the biochem, the chemistry of the water and the effluent and everything else, that it would have been intolerable. So the, 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 the current thinking is around those estuarine losses. Water quality would have been a big driver. There are other local, uh, smaller scale losses which have been driven by poor mooring systems, for example. But these all tend to be individually very small. But with growing recreational boat use, etc., they can actually scale up to be quite large too. My impression is that the water quality would have been a large issue, and actually it would have been multiple drivers of loss, um, all linked. Like not just you can't just blame one thing. It's it's like the water quality is poor. There was a, a disease that came through in the 1930s, which probably got hold a good hold in because because everything was stressed. One of our colleagues Ben did some work recently looking at something called stable isotope analysis, but looking at the ratios of carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus in leaf tissues back in 2016. And there's lots of enrichments. There's lots of these, there's basically a eutrophication um, happening in the, in the coastal space where you've got lots of nutrients loading in, into these meadows um, and where the plant tissues, I think I think it was 75% higher than Zostamarin average in from other locations. So, you know, there's lots of threats, but mainly due to water quality. Evie, would you say that's fair? I would. I would say that's fair. RJ's just spoken about how we don't really know where the seagrass was. So we've got large error margins around all that work. Something that we're really trying to improve on is as much as we're going out with our fancy drone doing all these mapping flights, which is great. But we've also got a app called the Seagrass Spotter app, which anyone can use. And when they're out walking along the beach at low tide or they're kayaking or maybe snorkeling or scuba diving if they see some seagrass they can take a quick picture of it upload it to this app and that's really helping to build our map of seagrass not just around the UK but actually globally because so much of it is hidden away it's been so understudied for so long that baseline data still needs building so if anyone fancies snapping away on seagrass spotter that would be a huge help to us and our project and the state of seagrass around the world there's also a really quite nice seagrass identification tool that's available on there which i found really neat so you just put in like where are you what what shape is the seagrass and then it gives you some suggestions because as, as you mentioned there's what, somewhere between 60 and 70 species which is uh, and that's globally and that's not a huge number so it's another one of those family of plants which is actually it's quite easy to become um pretty familiar with what's going to be in your area because it's not a, a huge range of it on, on that, the, the, the seagrass biodiversity is, is um, much like with the rest of the marine biodiversity, is focused on that Indo-Pacific. You know, in that space, there are, that's where the, the highest biodiversity of seagrasses are to be found. But in the UK context, we've only got two species. We've got Zostamarina and Zostanolti. So it's very easy, once you get your eye in, to, to spot those. And to, just to echo that plea from Evie, um, the, the data that is um, 
the, the, like the spotting of seagrass is actually really important for us because what it allows us to do is to have high confidence in um, what we're seeing from space. So if someone swam out and snorkeled over a meadow, took a photo and uploaded that and gives us the GPS location, then when we're either flying a drone or looking from space, if someone has uploaded a photo from the dark patch that we're seeing and the photo is of the seagrass meadow, then we know it's seagrass rather than another uh, marine habitat. And so what that allows us to do is to develop algorithms that give us more and more confidence in the sort of dark patches we see in the coastal zone when we're looking from space. And hopefully that way we can really scale up our maps. But, you know, it's through crowdsourcing data um, from, you know, citizen scientists that we're going to be able to achieve that. So it is super important. Part of the work that Project Seagrass does is you've got this just baseline, what, how, how much habitat is out there? Where is it? That's some of the work that you So can you talk a bit about the work that Project Seagrass does around um, helping communities to protect the habitat that they do have around them? A lot of that's place-based. So one of the projects we've got on at the moment is working with community groups across the Indo-Pacific, actually. So this is a, a, a UN-linked project um, funded by the International Climate Initiative, so it's ICI. Um, and that's working with community groups in Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Timor-Leste, and Indonesia, so those five groups. Uh, and really, that's a capacity-building project, which is having to be done remotely, but that's actually quite nice as well. So we're having sort of regular contact with these these groups and and walking them through the sort of scientific process for how you might collect scientifically robust data, which could inform um, an evidence base for the better management of the seagrass meadows in their in their space. And the reason for protecting seagrass meadows might be different in those different regions. So, you know, for example, Thailand there's a, there's a dugong population, which is really important for local tourism. It's also really important because they're dugongs and they're amazing. You know, being able to build a, a solid research base or evidence base around some defendable research is, is part of what we want to, to help you know, do. And we're, we're exploring opportunities for that also in the South Pacific at the moment. So um, really, it's about linking communities with expertise, not just within Project Seagrass, but with universities elsewhere as well. In Scotland, we've been doing some work with a, a coastal community group on the West Coast called um, Cromac. Um, they've, got, they've set up a charity called Sea Wilding. And we've been working with them to show them the process of restoration, how you would go about actively restoring a seagrass meadow. So that's anything from setting up the aquaria. So one of our team, Sam Reese, went went up and built some aquaria in a, in a boathouse on the side of the loch. And then with some of the rest of the team, we've been up there with a acoustic echo sounder, mapping the, the meadows, flying the drones over the meadows to, to provide a baseline map of you know where they could potentially restore and then just talking through the, the annual cycle of the seagrass. So when it flowers, when it seeds, collecting the seeds, processing the seeds, planting the seeds. So yeah, there's, a, there's quite a range there. From a community perspective on a much larger scale, I'll hand over to Evie because Evie's leading on probably one of the most complicated restoration projects we've got going on at the moment, which is in the Solent. When you've got so many communities there, that's another level indeed. Yeah, I guess at that point, we start with our community approach is much more based on the education side in terms of we've had a lot of success with going into schools, doing festivals, doing as many different outreach events as we can to get people helping to plant our seagrass meadows. So in order to plant our seagrass, at the moment we use really small palm-sized hessian bags, which naturally biodegrade in the sea this is giving it that little bit of protection from everything going on so instead of using soil we'll put in some sand 
and then pop in our seeds, tie our bag up, and then off we go to bury it in the sea and hopefully a beautiful meadow comes out. But as you can imagine, filling thousands and thousands of these small hessian bags with sand and seeds takes a lot of manpower. And that's where going into schools and giving them that opportunity to help with seagrass restoration, but in a way that's so helpful for us, um, has been incredible. We've had such positive feedback from that because the kids are learning what it takes to plant a seagrass meadow, what is a seagrass meadow, and also really working with them to understand the changes that they can make in their day-to-day lives to then help the seagrass meadow that they've tried to plant, that they've helped to plant. So encouraging them to make those small changes like using less plastic or using more environmentally friendly household products I mean that's much more when you're talking to parents and adults than telling a child to use a different washing up liquid Um, but getting those kind of basic concepts going from an early age has been really helpful things like encouraging people to eat slightly less meat or think about where their food is coming from and the process of growing that food and the outputs coming from that just to try and keep improving water quality around our coastlines. One of the big things that you've had kids do over the last um, little while is just helping to plant seeds and that is an activity that like classroom teachers, community groups, they do that all the time because kids love doing that. It's getting slightly muddy, um, planting seeds and, and so I think that's something that a lot of educators out there should bear in mind is that seagrass is a plant like any other plant. It just lives in a slightly different environment than you might normally think. So you can actually use seagrass as an example of a plant for talking about, you know, the life cycle of a plant, parts of a plant in the same way as you would any other one. It's just a slightly different environment that you would set it in. And then you've brought up also this point of making connections, which I think is super important in environmental education as well as to not look at things in isolation. Um, So you mentioned thinking about how your food is grown because uh, RJ, as you mentioned, one of the drivers of the habitat loss is, is just water quality. And here in the UK and, and around the world, one of the huge problems facing water quality and waterways and then leading on from that, our, our coastlines is, is agricultural runoff. And so, you know, how we grow our food can affect these aquatic ecosystems in, in ways that we might not at first think about. Yeah, just to jump in there, I think that, that's, that making people aware that what happens on land will end up in the sea is such an important part of that conversation. It's the sort of the lands- landscape seascape interface. But one of the one of the campaigns that we did in Scotland was around. It was actually it was actually started by a primary school, but they were drawing uh, like animals around all the drains in their local area, and it kind of spread nationwide. But it was just this focus on anything that goes down that drain is going to end up in a river, which is going to end up in the sea. So you know that's where the sea starts in some in, in many respects. And whatever is happening on land, whatever's going down that drain, whether it's you know coffee cups or rubber or whatever it might be, or if it's coming from the farm, that's going to end up in the sea. And so it's quite that conversation. I think is really important. Um, we're, we're just starting a, a project up here in Scotland in, in um, the Firth of Forth, which is a, a restoration project. Um, again, get engaging communities. But one of the it's really been born out of a really successful project called the Edinburgh Shoreline, uh, and Edinburgh's um 
been known as the kind of the city that turned its back on the sea. So no one really thinks of Edinburgh as a, a coastal city. Um, and yet it's got a very strong um, maritime history, um, particularly down in in, in uh, and Leith and East Lothian. And, and I mean, it's not Edinburgh itself, but over in Fife, there's you know, there a 50 mile oyster reef that used to exist in the Firth of Forth, probably the biggest in, in Great Britain. Uh, huge mussel beds as well. A lot of these were extracted during the, the Scottish Enlightenment and, and essentially fish uh, extinction. But there's that huge connection to the sea historically. But today, when people think of Edinburgh, they don't think of the sea. And, and culturally, it's not a big part of um, city life. And so the projects are really about connecting people back with the sea. There's been some community groups who've done some squares for the entire Firth of Forth coastline, little ordnance survey squares, where each community in that square was given some material which they could stitch or paint or do something onto, which represented what the fourth, the Firth of Forth, the, the water body meant to them. Um, and this was over the lockdown period. There's been a huge response. Like I think there must only be about seven or eight squares missing from the entire estuarine coastline. And the response has been given by people who live on, on in that space. And it's amazing. So the, the when you walk along this exhibition uh, and you, you see you know, whether it's people talking about their mental health and what the sea means to them there, uh, whether it's talking about, you know, oysters and mussels and that sort of historical element of the, the Firth of Forth herring fisheries. But, you know, the, the, the richness of nature and that, that ecosystem, as was, is no longer today. But what the opportunity is around this project is actually going, well, actually, yes, we did extract all of those materials from the Firth of Forth. The, you know, the herring fishery collapsed and the, the oyster fishery is no collapsed and everything's collapsed, basically. But there's an opportunity now for environmental renewal. We can put that back. It'll be a slow process, um, but you know, if we if we collaborate on it together and, and we build that culture around restoration, it is achievable. If we link from that back to um, the restoration project that you're involved in, I, I think the project seagrass. You've got a project on to replant. Was it two hectares of seagrass? And that that is the big one that you've been getting loads of people to fill up these hessian bags with because two hectares doesn't sound like a lot, but it's what is it? It's um, three and a half football pitches. And if you think of your your planting essentially tiny handfuls of seeds across four football pitches, actually, that is quite an undertaking. Um, how has that been going? So we've actually managed that. We have planted the two hectares, which is incredible to finally say. Um, it took over a million seeds. We had 20,000 of those small Hessian bags going out. It took over 2,000 people's involvement, people's time, volunteers across the country. We had people all over Wales getting involved. We had people in England, inner city London, all the way up to people in Scotland to make that project possible. And it's so exciting that when we now go back and we've had um so we finished planting november 21 so we've been back for our one year on assessment and really positive to see lots of baby seagrass and some quite long seagrass all across the restoration site and it's been the stepping stone to now go on to we've got restoration sites in the Solon, in North Wales, in Essex, all the sites that Scot- in Scotland that RJ's been talking about. So it's super exciting to see where this is going to lead to. And those new projects, presumably they still need volunteers because, I mean, you mentioned the volume of seed that was required for that 
first project. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that seed needed to be hand collected because there is not seagrass farms where you, you know you can't go to the shop and buy a bag of seagrass seed like you can with lawn seed. You you need to be you need to hand pick it essentially. Yeah, each each bit is hand picked. So thankfully for us, um, the seeds come in what's effectively like a little seed pod, a spade, where you'll get on average about 10 to 15 seeds. And you might get a few different spades on one shoot. So we can go along, carefully pick from the stem and collect maybe 30 seeds in one hit rather than at least individual pickings um, and that doesn't damage the plant that we're leaving that with its rhizomes intact so it'll regrow ready for next year but that was all handpicked by the team and by volunteers we had dive clubs across the country we had student groups we had people that would be walking on a low tide to collect seagrass seeds as well as people in scuba diving gear going out, spending hours and hours underwater, carefully going through. And then you move on from that, you take all the seeds back to the lab. And that's where the real fun bit begins of to get the seeds out of these seed pods. We need to let all the plant material rot down. So all that plant material will float to the top and the seeds are... Uh, naturally negatively buoyant so they'll sink out of the plant material to the bottom of our tanks and then in effect we can just scoop off the seagrass material and have the seeds left that's the kind of nature of it in reality we have had so many complaints across the university about how stinky it is to have barrels and barrels of rotting seagrass brewing away from August through till September, October time. And it takes a lot of hands to clear that through. But it's something we're working on. A colleague Sam Reese is looking and focusing onto the mechanisation of the whole process moment because we've lost so much of our seagrass meadows then we really need to keep working to restore them and it's not feasible to do everything by hand so Sam is looking into different ways that we can mechanize the process from looking at ways that we can effectively use a combine harvester to um, collect the seeds to different shaking sieve mechanisms to separate the seeds from all the plant material all the way through to ways that we can inject the seeds straight into the sediment without having to hand bury each bag. Is there a best spacing for the different bits of grass. I'm thinking this would be an interesting um, activity for teachers to do in maths is just think about, okay, if you want to restore X amount of area of land, if your seeds are properly spaced out, just how many seeds would you need at minimum? Um, So what's the spacing look like between these bags of seeds? So I'd say jury's out in terms of what's the most effective. Correct me if I'm wrong, Evie, but it was a meter, wasn't it? We 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 had a meter between bags in Dale. So that was the first project. And the idea behind having them at meter intervals is that you can then have a, you've got evenly spaced and based upon 
growth rates elsewhere, you, you could kind of expect that meter to maybe grow into um, a meter squared over about seven to 10 years so that the, the plant will grow rhizomatically out a bit like strawberries or spider plants, you know, sort of bulb, you know, clone itself essentially um, and fill the area. But because this, the marine environment is very dynamic, it that's you're leaving each plant quite exposed. And so depending upon the sort of seascape, um, is that going to be the, the best method? And some of our colleagues globally are looking into clumping um, and, you know, maybe having them at 25 centimetre intervals or 50 centimetre intervals. And that way you don't get to cover such a large area, but you tend to get more success. And, and you know, that, that sort of clumped effect where the, the seagrass all protects each other. So the, the outside of the clump might be a little bit more exposed, but the inner plants tend to do better. So really, we're still at the early stages of, of learning about restoration as, as, a, as a process and what's the most effective. The sea is such a dynamic environment that we go along with this careful idea of beautifully planned meter by meter um, seed deployment. And then you go back and you actually assess the site and you might have some of the bags have clumped into one area and that's been really successful because they can protect each other or some patches just won't grow at all. So there's huge amounts of variation that we still don't understand and are working to try and get a baseline going but each corner we seem to turn throws up a whole load of questions and new range of ideas of things to try and improve on for our restoration techniques working in the sea is just hard that's the that's the that's the the big thing especially around like the uk's got some fairly exposed coastline you know so if you, you you've drawn a map and you've got all your gps locations and your lat longs and you're like we're going to plant it here here and here at meter intervals and then you go out to plant and you've got crosswind and the, and the ribs drifting and um it it's it doesn't work out how you always plan it to work out absolutely but uh it's, it's you, you touched on this idea of you can't just go into the shops and um buy seed and you know one of the ways that we can seek to um, scale uh, seagrass restoration um, well across the world actually is through um, setting up nurseries. So there's a there's a move at the moment uh, towards a global seagrass nursery network. Certainly, we've started um, a, a small nursery in in South Wales uh, to see if we can grow seagrass seeds in saltwater ponds on land. Um, because if we can do that, I and mean, if we can do that at scale, then we could actually just produce bags of seagrass seeds for, for restoration projects. There's lots of science that needs to go into that. You know, as a plant, seagrass is understudied. If we if we knew as, as much about Zostamarina, the seagrass that we're looking at, as we did, you know, as we do, we do rice or wheat, then this would be this we could we could would be way ahead of the game. Yeah. But we still need to do a lot of the basic science on the plant first to understand how it works, um, how we how we can get to reproducing these ponds. So yeah, but between Elise um, Elise leading on the nursery and, and trying to get a, a seagrass nursery up and running in in the UK. And Sam with the mechanisation, hopefully both through being able to collect higher volumes of wild seed and plant higher volumes of wild seed through the mechanisation process, we can go from being you know, a million seeds a year to 5 million or 10 million. Or, and hopefully that will then give us more capacity to put more seeds in per hectare, but also to look at larger scale projects too. This is new, I guess, in the UK context, but that seagrass nurseries exist. You know, Australia's got a seagrass nursery. The, the States have done some work with mechanisation process and actually the most successful seagrass restoration project on the planet is, is in Chesapeake Bay um, from VIMS, Bob Orth's team. And they've restored, I think it's 36 kilometers squared of Zostamarina over the last 20 years. What they've done is they haven't planted that full amount. 
they've planted enough so that the ecosystem's flipped and it's become self-sustaining and actually a positive environment for seagrass. Once, once, the, once the seagrass has, has bound the sediment and it's created the, the highlight conditions and it's stabilized the environment, being an ecosystem engineer, it can then run with it. And so they've transformed the ecosystem. Now you've got the base gallops coming back and the carbon sequestration benefits and the biodiversity benefits. It's just, it's one of those real positive stories. And I'm not too sure if you saw the, um, the Earthshot prize. They were featured, I think it's in episode four. It's our colleagues globally who we're taking a lot of inspiration from. You talked about how a restoration project can cause an ecosystem to kind of flip and become self-sustaining. Because I think now, at the moment, there's a lot of concern about ecosystems collapsing, you know, reaching a tipping point, and then that's it. It can't sustain itself. It's, it's really heartening to hear that, you know, it, with the right research done and, and to figure out the right methods, we, it's possible to do the opposite, to flip things around. Because I think, I guess that's the, the challenge that we have to face here in the UK is, you know, we've not been focusing on this habitat for so long that there's just so little of it. We couldn't just leave it to regenerate on its own. Like that process would be incredibly slow because we've just wiped out so much of it. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's, it's case by case basis. So um, some of the large, large estuaries, I spoke about the Thames, for example. Um, you, yeah, significant effort needs to go in there to flip that system. Um, but for some of the smaller estuaries where there's been some degradation, but it, it hasn't, hasn't caused the extinction, the local extinction of the population, then just population reinforcement, just a bit of a helping hand. Prevention is always going to be better than cure. You know, let's not lose them in the first place because a mature seagrass meadow or mature mangrove um, forest or mature any ecosystem, the ecosystem services, that's what scientists call them, but the benefits that those ecosystems bring are so much higher when it's a mature system. You know, the, 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 the new meadow in Dale won't be fully mature and won't be bringing all the benefits for 10 years, you know, because it, it takes time. In the same way on land, if we plant a new forest, when we restore a forest, we don't suddenly get this forest back. We get lots of saplings in a field and over 60 years, it turns into a forest and over 300 years, it turns into a, you know, fully functioning old growth, maybe not old growth, but a mature forest. And it's the same in, there's, there's a, the scales of restoration are, far beyond the sort of human lifetime you know what we're doing here is about like my daughter and her and her kids hopefully and it's about the future it's, we've got to think about restoration at scale over the next 10 years because it's critical we do this now but the benefits will be felt really in the in the sort of century that follows that's the that's the end game here is that you know we need to restore ecosystems at scale in high volume now because we've got a climate and biodiversity biodiversity emergency. But well, I'm going to go for the massive rant now. That can't be at the expense of decarbonizing energy systems. Decarboning decarbonizing energy systems is the most important thing for climate change. And so, nature-based solutions of like returning nature isn't a silver bullet for for that element for the climate argument. But what nature-based solutions are a silver bullet for is nature. Like, and that's kind of obvious. But if you if you restore nature. And we put biodiversity, put nature back. Biodiversity comes back, and you know that. So there's there's a huge amount we can do in the short term to address the biodiversity emergency just by giving nature a helping hand. Yeah, we're helping out the healing process, but you know that's not going to be enough if we don't start harming it. All also, you know, yeah, you got to kind of tackle everything, don't you? Um, so I guess the the last question I have is um, w- ways in which. Uh, schools or individuals might be able to get involved with seagrass meadows, their restoration, or just finding out more about them? First point of call is keep an eye on our socials. 
Like if we have opportunities coming up, if we need volunteers for anything, we'll post on socials to get people involved. You can always drop us a message, head to our um, website and have a look on there. We're in the process of developing some new education materials. So we've got lots of resources that are readily available for teachers instantly. We love to get people involved. Just pop us a message and we'll see what we can. We're all about getting out and chatting to people has to be the best way to really improve the ecosystems we have. We need a collaborative um, approach. We need everyday people to get involved and be making those small changes for our work to make a difference. A couple of years ago, we did um, some work with a fantastic student at uh, up here in Edinburgh who who um, did a, a take on the wheels on the bus, but it's called The Fishes in the Seagrass, Like to Swim. So that, that's on the YouTube channel. Um, Evie's done some work during that first uh, COVID wave um, with with like Lizzie Daly, like live lessons and a whole bunch of stuff. You'll see a lot of Evie's face, um, which is it's always a, always a good thing. But yeah, there's there's lots of work there. And then you know we're, we're increasingly reaching out for collaboration. So going back to that that collaboration we've got with CGI at the moment, um, they they produced a STEM pack, uh, and that's on their website, um, which talks about seagrasses. And so there's there's lots of collaborations which uh, which we're we're working with. So there is a growing bank of of seagrass resources out there. Um, and there's also another project on the south coast which is being led by Fiona Crouch, um, which is EU Life Remedies. Uh, and I know that they've been doing a, a lot of work um, in and around uh, STEM education around seagrass too. So they'll, they'll have a bank of resources that people could tap into. Wonderful. So I'll, I'll put some links up to, to all of those things in the show notes uh, at the end. So don't don't worry if you're listening in about scribbling down the names of all these things, you'll find it in the notes. Well, uh, unless there's any other final bits that you either of you wanted to mention. No, just just would like to see you in a, a seagrass meadow in North Wales when you get the uh, the chance. Um, but no, it's, it's brilliant. Thank you for having us on. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really nice doing podcasts and being able to just chat about what we're passionate about. So um, and thanks for people who are listening for, for taking the time to listen through this episode to learn all about seagrass. Yeah, thank you so much. Go find yourself a seagrass meadow and join the team. Yeah, thanks Thanks for being on uh, today and taking the time to, to speak with me. It's really great to hear these really positive conservation and, and restoration stories. I think there's there's so much negativity out there. It's nice to hear these real like success stories of, of things that are making really good progress. And in you know, 10, 15 years' time, they're going to make a big difference to these local coastal communities that depend on these habitats. Completely. And, and do you know what? This is a global... Seagrass is just one habitat or ecosystem in a global movement towards putting nature back. Um, we're, we're a supporting partner to the, the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Um, and so if you go into, I think it's just decadeonrestoration.org, um, there's a website there. Um, but the, the next 10 years is critical for, for everyone to be involved. So no, no matter what um, you know, walk of life you find yourself in, there are things that you can do to um, make a positive difference to nature. So um, I'd definitely encourage people to check out that site. That's great. Thanks again very much, Evie and RJ, for joining me today. Thank you.